Good morning. So good to see all of you this morning. We've got a lot of new faces uh, visiting with us. That's exciting. We also have some faces that are missing as our college students go back to their respective universities. And uh, we're going to pray for them tonight especially. Pray for them as you go throughout your week. We're having a special prayer service tonight where we will pray for our teachers, our students as we start back to school as well as you know, our community and the church, and so I hope you'll be here for that. Uh, we do that every year, and it's always a very uplifting time. Our elders will be leading us in that tonight. And if you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of a series, uh, One Word, and we're taking one word each week and looking at it. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at salvation words. We've looked at faith, we've looked at repentance and confession. Now we're looking at baptism. And for those of you who are sitting here this morning who have been baptized, can I ask you why? I mean, why were you baptized? Was it because you were at church camp and everybody else was doing it? So you decided to get baptized, you saw everybody getting the, the praise and the hugs and everybody congratulating them and you wanted that feeling, so you went ahead and did it? Were you baptized because you were raised in the church and it was a formality, that's what you're supposed to do when you get a certain age, right? Maybe you were baptized to join a particular church. Were you baptized as an outward sign of an inward faith? Again, let me ask you, why were you baptized? Because it's an important question. When I was 16 years old, my grandfather called me up and he said, come to my house, I've got your birthday present for you. And I was excited. My grandfather was a rather wealthy man. I thought he's probably going to buy me a new car. I was excited. So I go to his house, I walk in, and there's a strange man sitting at the table with a stack of papers. My grandfather calls me in, he says, sit down. And he explains to me that my birthday present is a life insurance policy. And I said, come again? There's a rather hefty life insurance policy that was my gift from him for my 16th birthday. No new car, nothing of that sort. No, I was there to sign some papers on something that I had no clue what it was. I think sometimes Christians view baptism like a life insurance policy. You do it, and you forget about it. You get baptized so that you can assure that you're going to heaven, but other than that, we don't think much about it. Since the day that my grandfather presented me with that gift, I haven't really thought about that life insurance policy. I go several days on end without thinking about it. I think some people are the same way about their baptism. You do it, you forget it. I mean, I'm good now, I've been baptized, I'm going to get to heaven, so therefore, I don't think about it much anymore. And folks, nothing could be further from the truth. Baptism is not a life insurance policy. It's not a security clause. Baptism isn't about death at all. It's about life. Not just your life as a person living on this earth, but your life as something different. Someone who is now set apart and consecrated. Baptism should shape your life as a Christian. Which is why we need to have a proper understanding of everything that baptism entails. If you got baptized because your mom or your dad pressured you, or maybe you felt that they did. If you got baptized to join a church, if you got baptized as an outward sign of an inward faith, you were not baptized in a scriptural manner. 
None of those are scriptural reasons for getting baptized. And we need to understand that. You know, I may have told you, but when I was at another church working and worshiping with them, we had a situation in town where the Christian church split. And many of the folks from the Christian church came over to where we were at because we closely aligned ourselves with them. And so they wanted to be a part of our congregation. And we had numerous discussions with individuals or with families that wanted to come over, and we talked with them mainly, you know, about their baptism and about what they were coming into and all of that. And one Sunday morning, this sweet lady got up. She came forward. The elders explained the situation that was going on and the situation that was involved in her particular circumstances. Now, this particular church in town that is split, they believed in baptism for the remission of sins. She was baptized at a young age in a scriptural manner. And so she came forward. The elders prayed for her. She and her husband became a part of our congregation. And I heard somebody behind me say, well, are we just going to accept everybody now? And so after church, I went up to him and I said, what did you mean by that statement? He said, well, I, I just feel like she needs to be baptized again. I said, why? I said, she was baptized for the remission of her sins. So why do you think she needs to be baptized again? Well, I mean, we don't know for sure. And I said, we don't know if you've been baptized. There is no videotape evidence of me getting baptized, and I'm your preacher. Well, I just think that it would be good for her to do it again. It's not a scriptural reason for baptism for you to appease other Christians. That's not a valid reason for baptism. Just so one guy can be happy and feel comfortable with your state. Another situation, same type of deal. Church had split. This gentleman decided to come over and worship with us. His wife had been worshiping with us for years. She had been on him about coming over to worship with us and to be a part of the congregation there and he had been resistant. He had grown up in the Christian church. He had loved it. And so when the split happened, he was another one that came over. He was 89 years of age. He had been immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of his sins. Yet his wife was constantly nagging him, you should do it again. You should do it again. You just want to be right. And so one Sunday he answered the invitation, and at 89 years of age, he was baptized. And everybody was celebrating. Everybody was, was, was so joyous. And I'm thinking to myself, but he was baptized for the remission of sins. And then he came up out of the waters of baptism and he said, hopefully that'll make her happy. All that guy did was get wet. He did it to appease his wife, which is not a valid reason for baptism. Folks, we have to understand what baptism entails and what it means for us as a Christian. I think there are several people, maybe even more than several, that have gone into the waters of baptism and, and were dry and got wet, but nothing else changed in their life. They don't understand what they are doing as they contact the blood of Christ, as they put on Christ in baptism. It's not just important that we get immersed. It's also vitally important that we understand why. And not just why before we get baptized, but the why after we are baptized. Because baptism is not something you do and forget. Again, since the day my grandfather took out that life insurance policy, I don't think about it much. Baptism shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be something that we do and forget, that we think about as a life insurance policy, and that we're clear, 
everything's good. No, it's more than that, much more than that. It should tell us something, that every time Paul is speaking to a church in the New Testament, he is speaking to people who have been baptized. He's not speaking to people that are lost. He is speaking, whether it's to, to the Roman Christians, to the Christians in Galatia, or Colossae, Philippi. He is speaking to people who have been baptized. That should tell us something, right? He's talking to people and reminding them of their baptism and how that baptism should affect their lives. And we should all be paying attention. All of us have been immersed for the remission of sins, and we should consider our lives in light of our baptism. All of us who are sitting here this morning that have been baptized, do you understand why? Are you baptized for a valid reason? And are you living your life in light of your baptism? Now, there's a few things that I want to get straight. And before you tune me out and say, well, this is the part of the sermon where Chris goes over all of those things that we already know about. No, I, I think some of these things we might not know or we don't consider enough. So hang in there with me. Before we go any further, we need to understand some things about baptism to lay some ground rules. And first and foremost is baptism is not an additive. It's an expression. And I think too often we look at baptism as an addition to faith. I believe, and so I add to that, repentance, confession, and baptism. And that five-step model we talked about last week, I think, has probably maybe hurt us in this area as far as our thinking about baptism being an additive rather than an expression. When we talk about baptism, we are talking about an expression of faith. It's not an addendum to faith. Baptism is the proper response to faith. Many in the religious world make baptism and faith mutually exclusive, or they treat baptism as an afterthought. Even some in our own brotherhood garner the idea that baptism is the most important step in the salvation process. None of those ideas are correct. Living faith expresses itself in obedience, and baptism is a natural response by someone who, by faith, seeks to obey God's will. That's why Peter said, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is us crying out to God, make me clean. Secondly, we do not save ourselves by being baptized. It is erroneous to conclude that baptism is a work. And I've had individuals say to me, yeah, but you believe that you've got to work your way into heaven because you believe that, that baptism saves you and baptism is a work. And I say, no, I don't, I don't believe that at all. I believe that faith saves you. And they almost look shocked. Like they've never heard someone present it that way from the church of Christ. I absolutely believe faith saves you because the Bible says that. And that's what you should believe as well. Baptism saves you. But only the type of baptism or faith saves you, but only the type of faith that expresses itself in repentance, confessing Jesus, and being immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins, right? Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The only thing that you and I have earned is death and punishment. We cannot earn or merit our salvation, you know that. 
We are saved by God's amazing grace. However, grace does obligate. And that has to be added to the equation because a gift is not a gift unless it's received. And so therefore, there is a response necessary on our part. And so we receive the gift of grace by meeting the conditions, right? It's an act of obedience that says, I trust you, I surrender to you, make me clean. That's what baptism is. Like faith, like repentance, like confession, baptism has no ability to remove sins on its own. The power to remove sins is found not in the water, nor in the one doing the baptizing or the one submitting to the baptism. The power to remove sins is found in the blood of Christ. That's it. It's the blood of our Savior that washes us clean. Third, baptism is not a sign or a seal, and I hear this quite often. Many liken baptism to circumcision in the Old Testament, that it's a sign or a seal that we are saved by God. It is believed by many in the religious world that baptism is an outward sign that a person is under covenant. And it is true. You can read through the Old Testament. You can look at the different covenants. And you can see that there were signs or seals that accompanied those. But baptism is never referred to as a sign or a seal of the new covenant. God seals his covenant people without a doubt. How does he do it? Not by baptism, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our sign or our seal. Paul said as much in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It is not biblical to say that baptism is a sign or a seal of our covenant. Now, I do realize that Colossians 2, 11 through 13 makes a connection between baptism and circumcision, but baptism is not called circumcision in this passage. It's called a burial, and only those who have died can be buried and brought back to life. You think of baptism being like the children of Israel who crossed the Red Sea. It's symbolic of people going from slavery to freedom. And likewise, once we have passed out of the waters of baptism, we are sealed by God. We belong to Him. We are His own possession. And that seal is the Holy Spirit. Fourth, this is important because this is a controversy happening right now over baptism, and it's been happening for quite some time, and that is baptism is for the forgiveness of your sins, not because your sins have already been forgiven. Let me explain. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, it reads, And when he, Jesus, had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Did Jesus mean that his blood was poured out because sins had already been forgiven? Do you think that's what he intended for us to grab from that? I mean, could he have meant that he was going to shed his blood as an outward sign that our sins were already forgiven? Obviously, that is terrible exegesis if we believe that. And if you look at it, the rendering of for the forgiveness of sins is the same rendering that we find in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. In fact, that little word for in the Greek language, you may have heard of it, is the word ace, E-I-S. And it never 
never, underline never means because of in the New Testament. Doesn't mean that. So if someone wants to tell you that baptism is because our sins have already been forgiven, that's not even bad Greek. That's not even Greek. That's twisting and contorting the scriptures to fit a theological agenda and to get yourself off the hook and not have to admit that what you have thought or what you have taught is wrong. It's interesting to note that of the major Bible versions, the ESV, the NIV, the King James, the New American Standard, none of them ever translate for or ace as because of. Never. Even the more modern paraphrases of the Bible, like the New Living Translation, the ERV, the CEV, they don't translate for or ace as because of. It's important to note that. Finally, baptism is not just immersion. It's not just following a protocol or a formality. Baptism is not just the remission of sins. Baptism is a union with Jesus. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5 expresses this concept beautifully. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into his death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This, my friends is a miracle. The miracle of conversion happens when we are united with Christ and his blood. There's nothing supernatural in the water. Nothing in that water gives us life or washes our sins away. Jesus does. And by faith, we are buried in a watery grave and we are resurrected to a new life. That is the miracle of conversion. And yes, I said miracle. That is the miracle of conversion. But today, there is this, this ongoing debate about baptism and where it fits in the plan of salvation. There's even some debate about the mode of it. Do you sprinkle? Do you pour? Do you immerse? There are some who believe it's absolutely necessary, just not essential for salvation. There are those who don't believe that it's necessary or all that important even. And so this debate constantly rages. And you don't have to look very far unless you've been living under a rock. You've probably noticed that our view of baptism is not the norm. That we are rather peculiar, according to the religious world, and that we believe that baptism is a part of the salvation process that is absolutely necessary for salvation, along with faith and repentance and confession. Most in the religious world don't believe that. And so there are those who constantly ask the question, well, do I have to be baptized? Do I really have to be baptized? All I know is this. On the day of Pentecost, Peter gave a soul-stirring sermon, one that pricked the hearts of the people. And they asked one question. And you know what that question was? What do we got to do? What do we have to do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And nobody in the crowd, as far as I can tell, said, yeah, but Peter, do we really have to be baptized? I mean, you know, I mean, is that really necessary? I mean, what if you were in a desert and there was no water and you were walking? Nobody brought up those hypotheticals. Nobody looked for an out clause. Nobody looked for an exception. Nobody said, yeah, but Peter, I have one question. Yeah, I mean, do we receive the Holy Spirit after or before? Because it seems like you're saying that we get it after. There was no philosophizing. There was no debate. You know what they did? They went and got baptized. In the letters that Paul wrote, he was writing to Christians who had been baptized. Don't find any debate going on there. Of all the problems that the church in Corinth had, it doesn't seem like they had a problem with baptism. They seem to understand that one, right? That's why when people come to me and they say, so, so why do I have to be baptized? And I always respond with, why do you ask? Why is that even a question? I mean, you know what the Bible says. Just do it. I mean, why do you even have to debate it? Why is there this ongoing debate about whether I have to be baptized or not or where it fits in the plan of salvation? The Bible says to do it. The Bible says it's for salvation. So why are you arguing? Just do it. As you've heard me say many times, baptism is not the finish line. And we do a grave injustice in the church to the plan of salvation and God's word by suggesting that the peak or the apex of your daily walk with God is your baptism. That is a memorable moment. That is the day that you are reborn, but it's not the only defining moment in your Christian life. Baptism is not the finish line. Baptism is the starting point. Again, it's not a life insurance policy. It's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. You get baptized, and you remember your baptism constantly. It drives you. It motivates you. It is the reason why you do the things that you do in this life. Who you are post-baptism is every bit as important as getting baptized itself. That's the message of Paul to the Christians that he was writing to. Again, remember, he was writing to people who had been baptized. And his message over and over again was, remember your baptism. Be shaped by your baptism. We see him over and over again reminding these Christians to remember that. Here's the beauty of baptism. And it's something we don't talk about enough, and it's something that I could talk about for days on end. Thankfully for you, we'll end in about five or ten minutes. When it comes to baptism, it's not just about immersion. It's not just about getting the mode and the purpose right. Being baptized puts you smack dab in the middle of the Bible story. That's the beauty of baptism, is it places you right there in the biblical narrative. You're now a part of the story. Do you read the Bible with that kind of perspective? You should. Understanding that you are now inserted into God's story. 2,000 years ago, this world was filled with darkness. People were living in exile. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living in exile and wondering, you know, what the future holds. There was a promise by the prophets, right? There was a promise that there was hope on the horizon, but you may not live to see it. And so this world was living in darkness, in exile. And then God did something amazing. He sent his only begotten son 
to meet the requirements of the Savior that we so desperately needed, the sacrifice that we so desperately needed. And now, because Jesus has come, the kingdom that the prophets spoke about, that hope that was on the horizon, it is here, it has come, the Messiah has come, the anointed one reigns. We have hope and we are living in the times that those minor prophets talked about. It's here. Unfortunately, some are missing it. Some believe, like the strict Jews of Jesus' time, that they were okay. There was peace and security because they were going to be saved regardless because of their heritage. But the fact that Jesus came, the fact that Jesus fits the identity of a Messiah means that the chosen ones now are those who come through him. Notice something. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Skip down to verse 21 and it says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, you were exiled, you were estranged from God, you were living in darkness, but then something incredible happened. Jesus came. He died for the ungodly. He came to rescue those who were exiled. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the deliverer that the world so desperately needed. The Son of Man came to be light in this world. He came to break the chains of sin and death. He came to make dead people live, not just to make good people bad, I mean bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And then you look at Colossians chapter 1, this time in verse 15 and following, it reads, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or the things in heaven. Somebody ask you, what is the gospel? Well, it's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. That's the easy answer. That's the gospel. That means everything for us as children of God. The Messiah reigns supreme. And when you become a child of God, when you're immersed in the waters of baptism, buried with Christ and raised a new creature in Christ, you become a part of the biblical story. This plan was implemented to reconcile humanity back to God. The price for your rebellion has been paid. We were saved from our exile and we were granted citizenship into the kingdom where we get to dwell with the king for all eternity. Next time you read your Bible, read your Bible from that perspective. You are a kingdom citizen. You are a kingdom dweller. Baptism is the moment that you became a part of God's story. And notice Colossians 1, this time, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
remember your baptism. That's the message, right? You see that? That's what Paul is saying. Remember where you came from. Remember your baptism. You are different now. You're a new creature in Christ. You are a part of this story. Live like it. Live in light of your baptism. Notice Galatians 3, 24 through 29. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. That is you. That's describing you. You are Abraham's descendants. You are heirs according to promise. There is an inheritance waiting for you that is unimaginable. Light has come to dispel the darkness. He has come to bring the faithful remnant home. He came to make dead people live. Colossians 2 verse 9 and following. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled uh, out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. My friends, a miracle has occurred. Now you are alive. You were once dead. The only way to get out from under the reign of sin is to die. Romans 6, 3 and 4, as we've already talked about, illustrates this beautifully. Baptism is the means by which we die. Death can no longer have any power over us since we have been buried and resurrected. And that, my friends, is a miracle. You ever thought of your baptism as a miracle? But that is precisely what it is. And we need to consider our baptism as part of a bigger picture. Your death, burial, and resurrection not only puts you in contact with the blood of Christ and thus cleanses you from your sins, your baptism also inserts you directly into the story of redemption. So you are now a kingdom citizen. And the question becomes, are you living like one? Are you living like a kingdom citizen? Are you living like a kingdom dweller? You are, quote unquote, the new Israel. You have been grafted in. You are now a part of the kingdom. Are you living like it? Those of you who have been baptized, think back to your baptism. Think about that moment that you came up out of the water. That was a defining moment in your life. That was a huge moment in your life, and it should have been. But it's not the only moment. That's definable. Because every moment after your baptism, every moment post-baptism should be definable. You are being shaped by your baptism. When's the last time you confronted an issue in your life or you asked a question about a major decision in your life and you asked, I'm doing this because of my baptism. 
is this a good decision based on my baptism? You ever looked at life through that filter? You should. Because that was the day of your birth. That's the day you became a new creature in Christ. And every day since then should be a day of growth and maturity as you allow your baptism to shape you, as you live your life in light of your baptism. Baptism is not about where you go when you die. Baptism is about how you live until you die. You know, this is the point in the lesson that we usually give an invitation. And this is something that I've really wrestled with, and I've talked to my preaching friends about, I've talked to some of our elders about, you know, how we often in the church deliver an invitation, which is strictly a tradition, but it's a good tradition, right? If we didn't have an invitation, it wouldn't send us to hell. But it's a good tradition. But I think sometimes with our invitations, we kind of call on people to make a rash decision. You've heard the message, now get baptized. I don't want you to make a rash decision. I don't want you to get baptized this morning if you're not ready. That'd be the worst thing you could do. I think so many times our efforts are to push people into the baptistry, and then we can talk. You need to know about the cost of discipleship. You also need to know what it means to be immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins and what that's going to entail for the rest of your life. So I invite you this morning, if you want to discuss that, let's set up a Bible study and let's talk more about what it means to be a committed disciple. Let's talk about what it means to be immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins and how to live your life in light of your baptism. Let's talk more about that. But I'm not trying to spur anyone on this morning to make a rash decision or an emotional decision. Well, it's a great lesson. I'm going to go get baptized. People ask me all the time, well, do, do, do you feel bad that you gave that lesson and nobody responded? No, not at all. I don't want anyone responding in the haste of a moment. I want you to respond knowing exactly what you're doing. And if you know that this morning, then do it. You shouldn't wait either. If you know that you need to be baptized and you know what that means, why are you waiting? Don't wait. Take care of it. We want to help you to become a child of God who is faithful unto death. And if we can do that this morning, come as we stand and as we sing.